Well, welcome today to worship, everyone. I hope you've had a great time already meeting some people and singing praise and worship to God. John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, writes something pretty amazing. He said, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the devil, the ancient serpent, who's the devil or Satan. He bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years are over. After that, he must be set free for a little while. I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are over. Now, what in the world is he talking about? That, my friends, that section we just looked at is the most controversial section in all the Bible. There are many passages that have raised lots of questions and controversy within the body of Christ, but none more than Revelation 20. It's caused a sort of millennial mania and caused a lot of people to ask, how is the world going to end? Well, I want to talk to you about that today. You have a note sheet in front of you. You can open it up. It has four different columns on one side of that expanded sheet today. And I certainly invite you to take some notes. But before we dive in, I want to get you to help me a little bit because I just want to tell you, this is going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant, okay? There's going to be a lot of information, and you're going to be a little bit on overload, so I need to get some interaction from you. When I say throughout this message, get it, I want you to respond at all of our locations, nice and loud, got it. Can, can we do that? Can you talk back to me today? Let's try it. Get it? Good. All right. That sounds pretty good. All right. Now, for those of you who are rolling your eyes right now and going, I can't believe we're doing this in church. All right? Humor me today. Next week we won't be doing it or the next or the next. But there's a lot of information today, and I need to know that you're still with me and not glazed over. All right? So get it? Good. All right. Let's jump into millennial mania. Let's talk about how the world is going to end. In that first column, you have something called historical premillennialism. Now, you have a little graph there, and uh, I want to point a couple of things out to you about this particular belief. Uh, Now, by the way, on the back of that sheet you have are the same diagrams except in a little bit larger fashion so you can see them a little more clearly. The word premillennialism, that prefix simply means that Jesus is coming back before the millennium. Before, pre, before. So historical premillennialists believe that we're in the church age right now, and this T stands for tribulation, the great tribulation, which most historical premillennialists believe is, is seven years, or some don't believe it's exactly seven, okay? So historically, 
This group has believed that Christians will go through uh, some suffering, particularly under Antichrist, and we will have to be tough. But after that, Christ will return. So in other words, his return will be post-tribulation. So this is post-tribulational pre-millennialism. Get it? Good. All right. Let's see if you're still saying that by the end of this. So Christ is going to come down, and they take the word very seriously. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the Greek word, apontesis, which talks about we will meet the Lord in the air. It's a technical word used for going and meeting a dignitary that was coming to visit a city. Historical premillennialists believe that's exactly what we're going to do. By the way, there would be a group that would go out and meet the king or whoever was coming, the government official, to show their eagerness and their joy at his coming to their city. But then they would come back into their city. They wouldn't go off somewhere else. So that's what historical premillennialists say will happen. We'll go up in the air to meet Christ, showing our excitement, our joy, etc. We'll be caught up, and then we'll come back, and he will establish his millennial reign for a thousand years on the earth, okay? It will be different in kind from the world we know now. All kinds of things prophesied in the Old Testament will come true literally, this group says, in that millennial reign. Jesus will reign physically on this earth for a thousand years, probably headquartered in Jerusalem somewhere. There will be a resurrection of believers as that millennial reign begins, and they will receive glorified bodies. They'll be walking around on the earth with bodies just like Jesus had after he was resurrected. But at the end of that time, he will have a there will be a resurrection of unbelievers and a final judgment of unbelievers, and then we go to the eternal state, new heaven, new earth. Although, don't want to confuse this too much, some historical premillennialists believe the new heaven and the new earth actually starts way back here. There's so many nuances to this, I can't get into all of them with every view, or we would need hours to do it. So, that is historical premillennialism. Now, if you're taking notes, you might want to fill in some of those boxes. This is really the oldest view outside of Scripture. Now, keep in mind, all these views will claim that they're biblical. I hope we understand that. And there are people who believe all these views, views who are mature, intelligent, Christ-centered Christians who love the Lord and are sincerely looking for the truth. All right? Uh, we need to understand that. It's not like so, some of these views are just totally believed by heretics or something, or people who are trying to kibosh God's will in the world. No. All claim to be biblical. All claim to love the Lord. Now, but outside of the Bible, that's the question we're asking, where did we see this view first show up in the writings of somebody? Well, Justin Martyr, one of the great apologists for the faith, called a church father, an anti-Nicene church father, to be exact, because he lived before the Council of Nicaea. He wrote about this extensively in about 150 A.D. Other ancient writers, you don't have time to write all these down, people like Tertullian and Irenaeus 
and Hippolytus and Lactantius, all early church fathers. I hope you name your children some of those names. Name your next child Hippolytus, okay? Would you do that? That would be exciting. Uh, All of them believed that Christians would go through the great tribulation, and they wrote extensively about it. This is historical premillennialism we're talking about. Another thing that's noteworthy about this view is that it teaches that until Jesus comes, the world is basically going to get kind of worse and worse. That's what the down arrow means. So if you're taking notes, you can just write that in. Now, it's not to say that good things won't be happening. It's not to say that there won't be some healthy churches that are growing and thriving or some countries where the gospel may be very strong. But generally, this view teaches the world will get worse and worse. So in that sense, it's kind of pessimistic in its tone. The next thing you might want to write down is that this view teaches there will be a literal thousand-year reign. Now, not every single historical premillennialist believes that, but I'm giving you the broad brushstrokes, all right? Generally, it's literal, Christ reigning literally, physically on the earth. And then finally, when you ask the question of imminence, the word imminent, you're asking, does anything need to happen before Jesus comes? Or could it be at any moment? In answer to that question, historical premillennialists say unlikely, but possible. So there's a humility about it. In other words, they point to all the things Scripture says uh, that will happen during this time of tribulation, great tribulation, cataclysmic happenings in the heavens, which it's really hard to say have occurred yet, the sun being darkened, you know, the moon not shining its light, uh, the Antichrist arising. And, and again, you, you might point somewhere and say, well, he, he's already on the scene, but a little bit unlikely, okay? And so they take a humble position. Eminence is unlikely, but possible. There's probably a few more things that ought to happen, but they would say those could happen very quickly. So those signs should not make us be at peace in Zion and lose our edge as Christians, those signs that we know are coming should actually build our anticipation for the coming of Christ. So that, my friends, is called historical pre-millennialism. Get it? Good. All right. I'm excited. In all of our locations, I want you to be thundering this out. Let's quickly look at another view. This view is similar it's got the same premillennialism tag on it. It's called dispensational premillennialism. Now let's look at the graph for this view. This view is the same in that it teaches that we're now in what's called the church age. This is the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, his first advent and his second advent. But the interesting thing about this view is back in the 1830s, back in the 1830s, an Irishman named John Nelson Darby, you got to thank God for those Irishmen, he created a couple of new twists to this view. So this is actually, while this is the oldest, this is the newest view. Now, the premillennial part is the oldest, But these two new twists I'm going to tell you about first appeared in writing anywhere in the 1830s, but they became very popular. Here are the two things I'm talking about. 
They taught that there will actually be kind of two comings of Christ, one called the rapture and one called the revelation. Now, remember, historical premillennialists also believed we'd be caught up in the air. They believe that, so if you want to call that a rapture, cool. Rapio is the Latin word that Jerome gave in his Latin Vulgate translation, and so the word rapture was with us from there on. Arpagio metha, Arpagio sometha is the Greek word, and it literally means to seize up or to catch up. So they believe there will be a secret rapture of real Christians. We don't know when. It could happen at any moment. And we will go off, instead of coming back immediately, we will go off and be with Christ for seven literal years with the marriage supper of the Lamb, basically celebrating, partying, having a great time. Sounds like a good time. Meantime, literally, all hell is breaking out down on earth. That's what this T stands for. Now, one little footnote here. There are a number of people who are, believe that uh, Christians will go through half of the great tribulation. A name as eminent as Harold John Ockengay, who was the pastor of Park Street Church in Boston for many years, one of the founders of Fuller Seminary, one of the, considered one of the greatest preachers America has ever produced. He believed in a mid-tribulation rapture. And so that view promoted by Mar- Marvin Rosenthal and many others is becoming increasingly popular. But generally, this is a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. In other words, it's generally believed that Christians won't go through any of the hard times of the great tribulation. Instead, at the end of that time, Christ will come back with his saints. Do you see the two comings? He comes for his saints, doesn't touch down, meets us in the air. And the second one, seven years later, is with his saints as we come and the battle of Armageddon is fought at where the Mount of Megiddo in northern Israel overlooks the Valley of Esdraelon, the Plain of Jezreel. It's about a 20-mile-long, 14-mile-wide strip of land where it's believed that final battle called Armageddon will take place. And then there will be a resurrection of believers, glorified bodies. Then Christ will set up his millennial reign for a thousand years and all those glorious Old Testament prophecies will come through true literally where the lion will die, lie down with the lamb, where the little infant will play over the hole of the ass, where the young child will put his hand into the hole of the adder and the whole animal kingdom, economic kingdom, everything will be transformed. It will be a life that is different in kind. And at the end of it, there will be a judgment of unbelievers as they will be resurrected, final assignment to heaven or hell made, and then the eternal state, new heaven and new earth is set up. Now, let me point out a couple of other things about this before we move on. Just like historical premillennialism, this view teaches that until Jesus comes, the world is basically going to get worse and worse. It's like a sinking ship. And we can't keep the ship from sinking. What we can do is save some people off the sinking ship and get them into some salvation lifeboats. So the world's going to get worse and worse. It teaches that it is a literal thousand years and the coming is imminent. 
is coming as imminent because it's a secret rapture, remember? So it could happen at any time. Nothing else needs to occur before that secret rapture happens, all right? So that is called dispensational premillennialism. I told you there were two new things that Darby introduced here in the 1830s and following. One was that secret rapture, and here's the other one, the role of Israel. Need to know this. These two things are the sine qua non, the essential parts of dispensational premillennialism. And by the way, this view is by far the most popular view among evangelical Christians today. People who believe this view, I'm going back now to premillennial, historic premillennialism. People like Wayne Grudem, one of the greatest theologians today, a fabulous guy. My mentor, Louis Drummond, Dr. Louis Drummond was a historical. Billy Graham is a historical premillennialist. He used to be here. In his later years, he switched to this. By the way, you're going to see many people move around through the years. We'll talk about that later. Uh, George Eldon Ladd, and I recommend a couple of his books to you. They're on the back shell of your bulletin today. I told you a few weeks ago. I would recommend some books to you. Well, today's the day. They're on the back shell of your bulletin. I hope you'll look at those. Some of you know about John Piper. Uh, He's a very popular theologian, writer, president of Bethel Seminary. John Piper, Desiring God, and Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, and all those other great books. He is an historical premillennialist. Some of the better theologians that espouse this view are people like John Walvoord, Dallas Theological Seminary, Charles Ryrie of the Ryrie Study Bible, D.L. Moody was this. He was the first major U.S. evangelist who was not a post-millennialist, which we will look at later. C.I. Schofield and the Schofield Reference Bible helped popularize this view in America to the point that over 200 colleges, seminaries, and Bible institutes have officially adopted this view of dispensational premillennialism as their official eschatological view. Get it? Got it. Good. I love it. All right. Now, the thing that catapulted this into such prominence in 1970 was a book by a guy named Hal Lindsey, as if it weren't popular enough already through the Schofield Bible and all these denominations who embraced it. Hal Lindsey wrote a little book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And man, it exploded this view onto the scene. It's totally based on this view. And then closer to our time was a series of books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins called the Left Behind series. They sold over 200 million copies of those books. They totally are based on this particular view, all right? So that's dispensational premillennialism. But I hope your seatbelt's buckled because now things change dramatically. Get it? Good. Now let's talk about the next view, post-millennialism. Would you look at your little diagram, whether you're looking at the larger one on the back side or on the four-paneled side, doesn't matter, but I know it's awfully small and hard to see. You may need a magnifying glass to see it. But post-millennialism is very, very different. And these first two views, Jesus reigns physically 
physically on the earth. In fact, this particular view, dispensational premillennialism, says that the millennium is really all about Israel. Well, the Christians will be there too, but it's really all about God's promises to Israel, to be honest. And the temple will literally be rebuilt. And by the way, this is a part that doesn't often get mentioned, but Darby also taught, as did Schofield and all the other major people who promote this view, that all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament with full with the Levitical priesthood and everything else will be totally reinstituted during the millennium but not for forgiveness of sins, simply as a memorial to what Jesus has already done. Okay? That's kind of, that's, that's all a part of that view. But this view is very different. You notice we're in the church age now, and the church age blends right into the millennium. In other words, in these first two, the millennium starts with Jesus' dramatic second coming. You know when it's happening. You don't have to guess, has the millennium started? Get it? good. But with this view, you might not know when it started. It it could be started right now. We could be in the millennium right now because it's not a difference of life in kind like the first two. It's a different in de- difference in degree. Jesus is not physically reigning on the earth in post-millennialism. He's reigning through the gospel, through his presence by the Spirit, and through his saints. So that's what postmillennialism is about. It teaches there will be a long period of time where the gospel will go out in power and much of the world will be Christianized. And at the end of that time, does it have to be a literal thousand years? Most postmillennialists take the revelation far more symbolically than that. The millennium, the thousand years is simply a long period of, you don't take any of the others numbers literally. Why take that one literally, they say. So uh, it's a long period of time. We don't know how long. The Lord will decide that. And at the end of that, there will be a resurrection of both believers and unbelievers and a final judgment. And then there will be the entrance into the eternal state, new heaven, new earth, where we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, you say, well, when did that show up? Well, again, all of these views claim to be in the Bible, All the proponents would claim they're right in the scripture if we just had eyes to see them. But the first time we see this in a systematized way is in about 1680 with an English clergyman named Daniel Whitby who wrote about this post-millennial system. Now, just a little footnote, a lot of people say that Augustine actually started this back in the 400s AD, and that's possible. I'll say another word about that later. But the first time we see it clearly is in Daniel Whitby. Now, unlike the other views, this view teaches that until Jesus comes, wow, like guess what? The world is going to get better and better. <laughs> And you say, dudes, come on, how can you believe that? They would say the problem with you premillennialist is you're taking too short a view of history. You just look at Christianity in America today and, and, and all the fickleness that you see and you, you determine, that, oh, it's, it's just getting worse and worse. They'd say, come on, take a long view. How many Christians were in the upper room? 120 people. Guess how many Christians are in the world today? over 2.2 billion. 
I'd say the world's getting a little better. That's what a post-millennialist would say. Or they'd say, consider the continent of Africa. In the year 1900, there were approximately 10 million Christians in the entire continent of Africa. In the year 2000, just 100 years later, there were 360 million Christians. And the same could be said, almost identical numbers in South America, similar numbers in Asia. Christianity is exploding. At current, current projections, there will be 633 million Christians just in the continent of Africa by the year 2025. So get a longer view of history, these folks would say. God's got a lot of things in store. And Postmillennialists would say God wants to do that in two primary ways. One is through changing government structures and getting Christians into places of influence. One of the books I recommend to you is R.J. Rushdoony. He's got a great book on postmillennialism, and he's a member of a group called Christian Reconstructionists. They teach that basically Christian principles will begin to dominate the world just because they work. The other group that are postmillennialists believe that God will do this through revivals. One of those, for instance, was Jonathan Edwards, considered the greatest theologian America's ever produced. He pastored over in Northampton, Massachusetts, near here. He pastored in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, later became president of New Jersey College, later known as a little school called Princeton. He lived from 1703 to 1758, a brilliant intellect. He was a solid post-millennialist. Anything Jonathan Edwards believed is worth considering at least, seriously. And so he saw revival breaking out in his day. And he wrote a little book, and here was the title of the book, An Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth Pursuant to Scripture Promises and Prophecies Concerning the Last Time. That's the title, not the whole book. Get it? Good. Edwards believed that we should pray in hope, believing God is actually going to honor the gospel. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. I'm passing it on to you guys. So when you pray, you ought to expect that revival is going to break out. You ought to expect that the gospel is going to go out in power. Didn't Jesus teach that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? That's the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it becomes the greatest of all shrubs. So it becomes a tree and birds can come and nest in its branches. That's the picture of the growth of the kingdom. And many post-millennialists would say that before Jesus returns... Possibly 80, 90% of the world will become Christian. Not everyone, but possibly 80, 90%. Again, the millennium is not a literal thousand years. It is a long period of time. But here's a big difference. When you ask a post-millennialist the imminence question, in other words, does anything need to happen before Jesus comes back? Or, Or could it occur at any moment? Their answer is very different than all the other views. They would say the second coming of Jesus is not imminent. 
because far too many things need to happen. They would point to Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom must be, must be preached to all the nations. Greek word is ethne, ethnic groups. And they'd say, guys, there's still hundreds of ethnic groups who don't even have the gospel in their own language yet. We, we need to get rid of our escapist mentality, post-millennials would say to us. You, you guys have an escapist mentality. You, you're even running up your credit cards because you say, it doesn't matter. Jesus is going to get me out of this mess any day now. <laughs> Hallelujah. They'd say, Jesus called us to change our world, not to run from it and be afraid of it. So get some faith. Let's expect God to do so. I love post-millennialists. I love this kind of passion and vision. John Calvin, the most influential Protestant theologian of all time, was a post-millennialist. The Reformed Church is entirely post-millennial. The Augsburg and Westminster Confession of Fa- Fashions of Faith are entirely post-millennial in their outlook. A, a, a current guy on the radio, R.C. Sproul, one of the most brilliant intellects on the radio today. I'm so glad he's there. He is a thoroughgoing post-millennialist. This is a view that has a lot of positive things about it. Get it? Thank you. Good. Now, let's quickly look at this last view. Amillennialism, it's kind of an unfortunate thing. It literally means no millennium, but what they actually believe is that we're in the millennium right now. That the church age and the millennium or the millennial age are the same thing. You say, well, how do they get that? Well, they get that from Ephesians where it says that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's right now. They get that from Revelation 20 where they believe that reigning with Christ for a thousand years that's referred to is a symbolic way of talking about the martyred saints who are now reigning in spirit with Christ, okay? So the millennium is right now. And Jesus could come at any time. He's going to raise believers and unbelievers. There will be a final judgment, and then there will be the eternal state. So in many ways, amillennialism is the simplest of all the views. It was first written about by Augustine. By the way, he's not really St. Augustine, That's a city in Florida. He's Augustine. That's really how we should say his name, although a lot of people call him Augustine. Considered the most formative Christian theologian in history, period. Nobody else shaped Christian theology more than Augustine. He was an amillennialist. Now, one little footnote. Sometimes, don't let it confuse you. You'll read and you'll see, oh, John Calvin was an amillennialist. And then another person will say he was a post-millennialist. Or they'll say Augustine was an amillennialist, but then they'll say he was a post Sometimes you can hardly tell because these two views share a lot in common. They really do. They share a lot in common. They both see this in a very symbolic way. One thing about this view is that until Jesus comes, this view would emphasize the world's not necessarily going to get worse. It's not necessarily going to get better. But good and evil are going to simply run on parallel tracks, just like they always have, until Jesus comes back. This group sees the revelation much more in terms of principles that are timeless. God's simply giving us principles there that are relevant for God's people no matter where they find themselves. 
and that would be just as relevant for Christians suffering under ISIS today in Syria as they would be for Christians in South Korea, which is one of the most Christianized nations in the world, or the United States of America. The time between Christ's coming, first coming and second coming, is the millennium. That's the nature of it. Now, again, note the differences in the nature of the millennium. Premillennialists believe it's a literal thousand years for the most part. Postmillennialism, a long period of time. This group, it's now. We're in it right now. It's the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And again, finally, when you ask these folks, is the second coming of Jesus imminent? They would say, of course, it can happen at any moment. Nothing needs to occur, really, before Jesus returns. Now for the big question. Some of you are wanting to know. Pastor Rex, which one are you? Could we have a cosmic drum roll, please? As if it really matters. Well, before I tell you what I am, I'm going to tell you what I'd like to be. I'd like to be a post-millennialist. I like the spirit of it. I like the optimism and the positiveness of it. I I just can't quite ignore uh, all those other passages that talk about the the tough times before Christ comes. So I have trouble embracing this fully, but I like like the optimism. If you press me to the wall, I would say that today, and it really depends on which day you ask me, and I'm being totally honest, because all it hinges on is a couple of little hermeneutical presuppositions that I would need to change. If you push me to the wall, I'd say I'm here. I'd say I'm here. I can make the most sense of the most passages in Scripture by adopting this system, okay? But I could just as easily, just by changing two or three key presuppositions, I could just as easily be an amillennialist, all right? Just by changing a couple of things. I think that is the second most plausible of all of these views. Now, some of you are sitting right there, there right now and you're going... I can't believe it. I thought you guys were led by the Holy Spirit. I thought, I mean, you guys have said, you preacher types have said for years, the Bible is so simple, even a child can pick it up and understand it. How can there be this millennial mania? How can there be so many different views from solid, mature, informed Christians? Well, I just want to make a few closing thoughts as we wrap this up today. On the back of your note sheet there is a place, just three little final statements. One, I would encourage you, if you're trying to figure out where you're going to land, I would encourage you to embrace the fact that mature, intelligent, Christ-centered Christians sometimes disagree about convictions. Now, we have this thing around here we call the three circles. In the middle circle is essentials. Outside that is convictions. Then there are preferences. Essentials are those things without which you no longer have historical biblical Christianity. Convictions are things that the Bible speaks to, but totally committed Christians have disagreed on for 2,000 years and still do. And preferences are things that we just need to make a choice on, but they're not really found in the Bible. Should I have a chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk of my car? It's not in the Bible. It all depends on how you drive. 
okay? If you're driving, give Jesus a bad reputation. Get the fish off of there. It's just practical, okay? Just practical stuff. Everything we're talking about, are you still listening to me? Everything we're talking about today is in the conviction circle. So let your blood pressure go down a little bit. Breathe for God's sake. Don't be so dogmatic about it. Embrace the fact that genuine mature Christians sometimes disagree. And this is an obvious situation of that. Now, this is where our Catholic friends would look at us and smile and go, yeah, that's the problem with you Protestants. You need a pope. You guys need a pope to figure all this out for you and tell you what the truth is, right? I got so many Catholic friends who've said that to me. The problem with you Protestants is you don't have any human person who can decide all of this stuff. And the reformers knew that when they rejected the idea of a pope. And they appealed to something called perspicuity. In other words, they said that the most important things in the Bible related to how to be saved and how to grow in Christ are perspicuous. They're crystal clear. Yes, even a child who has a basic reading ability can pick up the Bible and figure out how to be saved and some things to do to grow. Yes, 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 that is true. But they never claimed that everything was crystal clear. I mean, come on. Even Peter, in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, referring to some of Paul's inspired writings, said, in them are some things hard to understand. Think about it. If one inspired apostle was admitting humbly that he didn't fully understand another inspired apostle, you're being pretty arrogant to say that you do. Hello. Get it? Good. We need a good dose of humility here, okay? And for God's sake, don't make me your pope. (laughs) See, what many of you evangelicals do, since you rejected the idea of a pope, you get your own little pope (laughs) and your favorite radio preacher. And if Charles Stanley said it, I believe it, and that settles it. If Joyce Meyer said it, oh, there is no doubt. It is true, true, true. Don't make any human person your little pope. Be good Bereans. Be Acts 17, 11 people. Check the Bible out carefully for yourself. Think for God's sake. It may be a new sensation. Okay? <laughs> Secondly, as we wrap up, be humble about your convictions and kind to those who disagree. Be humble about your convictions. In fact, let me give it to you this way in a statement. Hold the essentials with confidence. You can write this in. Hold the essentials with confidence. Hold your convictions with humility. And hold your preferences with a spirit of practicality. Just what what is God blessing, right? Because they're not moral issues, the preferences, okay? And one final statement as we close. Stay excited about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that statement (laughs) kind of presupposes you are excited. I don't know if you are or not. If you are excited, 
stay excited. If you're not excited, get excited. Have you ever heard any critic of Christians make a statement like this? Yeah, you silly Christians. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I would say to that person, check your history carefully before you make that statement. Because what you'll find if you do your homework is that it is the very Christians, whether pre, post, or amillennial, it is the very Christians who believed most passionately that Jesus was coming back. It was those very Christians who did the most good in the world. It was those very Christians who helped abolish slavery. It was those very Christians who helped establish the child labor laws to protect little children from being worked to death and abused in factories. It was those very Christians who brought about the most healthy and helpful reforms in all of Western civilization. The second coming of Jesus Christ, friends, is our blessed hope. Let's stay excited about it. And it's all going to pan out in the end. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us a word from you in your Bible where we can know how to be saved, where we can know how to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And even though we at times bump into doctrines that confuse us or a little bit complex and how they're layered. I thank you, Lord, that we are one in you. Help us to maintain that unity. Help us to be humble about our convictions and help us most of all to be so excited that you are coming soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.